Want to make your own podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easy, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. Here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like I have an outlet for the creativity and ideas I want to share with the world. I recommend you give it a try. We all have a voice, so share it with the world. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started today. As a retired archaeologist, I can attest that American archaeology is still rooted in 19th century belief systems. They're not theories about the people of North and South America, but their beliefs akin to religious dogma. Anything that doesn't fit with this belief is treated as heresy. Shouting to the world throughout the centuries, we have a technology to do this, and we're showing it off. And nobody since has a technology that can duplicate it. Welcome to the Days of Noah podcast, where we talk all things biblical, supernatural, and strange. This week, my brother Luke and I are going to talk about elongated skulls found all around the world and ancient megaliths, technology that we cannot even duplicate today. Before we get into the Elongated Skulls episode of Blurry Creatures with Brian Forster, uh, I wanted to quick go over um, a quote from Doug Van Dorn in his book, uh, Giant Sons of the Gods. I thought this was really good about, because we were talking about um, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And I think you and I talked about this when we got together recently, but I just wanted to touch on it quick because he had a, a good quote. And then we can roll right into the elongated skull stuff. Um, so he was basically saying that you have an inconsistent spiritualization that goes on if you consider the serpent seed as like metaphorical or some sort of spiritual meaning. But then the woman's seed, the coming Messiah, is like actual physical. So he's kind of calling that like a double standard. So a lot of people will call the first seed spiritual, like wicked people. Um, your spiritual father is of the devil. So like if you're familiar with 
um, Jesus' conversation in John 8 with um, the Jewish leaders. And he was saying, if God were your father, you would love me um, because I came from God. And, uh, and he calls him out and says, you are of your father, the devil. And the, uh, the word used there is ek in, um, in the Strong's. Strong's 1537, and it just means out of, from, by, or away from. So it's not like a, a literal lineage or offspring. Um, like in Genesis 315, the seed word is the same word both times. It's Zerah, Strong's uh, 2233. And that means like seed, semen, offspring, descendants, children. So a lot of people will spiritualize um, that first seed as, you know, wicked people from or of the serpent. But they have to have justification to splice up the meanings. And so Doug says, uh, I don't have a problem with saying that both are spiritual or even that both are physical and spiritual, but he says there's an inconsistency if you call one spiritual and the other biological. So then, thinking about that the last couple of weeks, I thought, you know, it's it's probably it's probably both. But one way I thought of it is, if it's not a literal offspring of the serpent, then it could be of his lineage, as in. Uh, angelic DNA, and of course that fits right in with Genesis 6 and the, the Nephilim and the, the, the seed of, of uh, the angelic procreation. So that would be one type of seed that would be of the serpent, and then, then you'd have human, of course, which is where you get you know the line of Messiah through there. So I think that's one way to think of it if it's not literally his offspring, then it could still be literally in the physical sense because he's of a different type, right? He's an angel- right. angelic DNA. And I would like to hear Michael Heiser's thoughts on that because there was one video that he suggested the serpent seed was meta- metaphorical, but I haven't come across any anything more from him on that, so kind of want to see what he thinks. Where he gets that idea. Yeah, I, I, th- I, th- I think that scripture in my mind, or my opinion, in Genesis 3.15, I, I really think it's, it's dealing with both. Um, because you have character traits or the will that people have. So the choices that people make can take you either you're doing the will of the Father, you're doing the will of the flesh, or, or the will of the serpent. Um, so there, you could almost put that in the category of spiritual and then you have testimony and, and we know there was literal seed that produced literal offspring throughout history. So I, I feel like that one verse is encapsulating both just because there's so much evidence that both took place. So, so like you said, when Jesus is correcting the apostle, Peter, get behind me, Satan, it wasn't literally Satan, an offspring of Satan standing before him. 
No, this is his chosen servant, his chosen apostle. But his his character, his will, the motivation of his words was was wrong. So he was Jesus was getting to the root of it. And what does it say in Revelation that if uh, you got the, the Satan is the father of lies, and I think there is um, some scripture that I think it was the Lord that is correcting somebody that that was a liar. You're as your father, the devil. Are they literally the father? Is there is devil the devil literally their father, like genetically? No. But if your your will and your uh, your behavior is not in line with God, the flesh and the and and the serpent seed, his motivation those, those are aligned. So you really have to you. There's a lot of examples that both are taking place. Um, so. I, I, I don't think that scripture can be described one way or another. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it I think it is probably a dual meaning. And we see that a lot. Like when when God says things, he often has layers of meaning behind things. You know? Like like even the double meaning of on this rock I will build my church and Reference to both Peter's name, but where he's actually standing there at the foot of the literal gates of hell and, you know, Mount, Mount Hermon. Well, as, as we're learning, um, and, and you, you gave some examples of the Strong's and the original language and their meanings, you know, it's been said about love in the English word for affection, love, where is the original agape love, I think I'm saying it right, is, is Greek. And there's, there's dual meanings in words. It seems like, uh, unfortunately, English is not a, it's not a good language. It's not as precise. No, it's not as precise. meaning. Greek and Hebrew... I have heard are are very good for being precise, so so we're fortunate that 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 is the <laughs> the language that we have our our Old Testament in and uh, um, and New Testament, you know Old Testament in both with the Septuagint translation. But yeah, they're much more precise. Yeah, I would just love you've got um, you know romantic eros, you've got um, agape you know, with God, and then you've got, I think, philos, which is friendship, and there I might there might be a fourth one in there, too, but there's at least three, so, yeah, it's not as precise. Yeah, I think that's the, that's probably the way to take it, is, is a dual meaning, um, and it's interesting, too, especially in our day and age, how much we spiritualize things in the Bible, and we immediately dismiss a literal meaning to a lot of things in Scripture, we go right to a spiritual, and it might have both. It does. And I know um, Dr. Michael Heiser doesn't want us, in his opinion, to look at Scripture entirely 
literal because then you're missing context you're missing um other angles so it's it's good to look at it from multiple facets um just like we're trying to dig into the the, the meaning of words and i was I, I was reminded of something you know how babel babylon and i think it, it, it has a meaning dealing with confusion um the tower of babel well there's uh there's a mesopotamian meeting because that was in that region and, it, and i think the mesopotamian meaning of babylon was gate of the gods so you really need to look at meanings you know how, how do other people look at those words too um so you definitely got to go at things from from different angles and 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 we and we know the enemy wants to confuse us our own flesh can confuse us so the lord the lord brings clarity to things if we we really study to show ourselves approved and that that is our hope and that's, i know that's kind of why we're doing this is to kind of parse our understanding of things and to try to clarify it in our minds um on this subject so yeah and how and how it lines up with lines up with history how it lines up with archaeology um testimonies of people yeah i mean i think if we were if all we had was like a biblical exegesis of genesis 6 4 okay that'd be one thing but then when you have all these other bits of evidence it really makes a complete picture so right yeah, and I think Michael Heiser's right on when he's like, you got to put yourself in the mindset of these people. What what was their culture like? What were the books that they would have been familiar with like? Yeah, because there's a lot of like, I think it's Ugaritic, um, Mesopotamian, I, some of those words I kind of get interchanged. But um, yeah, just the template of the culture in the Second Temple period there's a lot of that language, like when Peter uses the word Tartarus, like that's out of Greek mythology, when he says, you know, angels chains in, in darkness. It's the only time in the Bible that the, the word Tartarus is used. It's like this abyss, this lower level of, of hell or something. Um, but yeah, he's taking language right out of, you know, pagan cultures. Um, right. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, let's uh, let's move on. So... Brian Forster, uh, quite an expert on um, on the elongated skulls, been studying that for many years, and I guess he and L.A. Marzulli have done a lot of work together, um, working on these things. So, so that's pretty cool. I would like to um, get into some of L.A.'s uh, DVD series and books on that, and uh, kind of get his take. Yeah, if you go to his website. Uh or just google his name i think it's dot net um he, he's got a store there uh, i've purchased a few things and just recently i think it's going on right now christmas 2022 um items that are not on sale i'm throwing out an advertisement for him um 50 off so and he's got access uh, he's got a lot of his dvds um where you can buy them 50% off and stream it. You could either rent it or you can buy the streamed version. You own it. You just log in anytime you want and it's the streamed version. 
So definitely worth, I actually got uh, two of his at the half off price. So, so yeah, great resource. So if anybody wants to check it out. I would like to have a, oh. have that as part of my collection. I'm gathering up a lot of uh, a lot of Kindle books, a lot of wish list items from from different authors. You know, you gave me the um, um, the Roots of the Federal Reserve from Laura Sanger. You know, I'm reading Doug Van Dorn's book. I'm close to finishing Michael Heiser's Unseen Realm, at least on Audible. I would like to get the a text version to go through it more detail, but. Yeah, there's a ton of good information. We don't have to really reinvent the wheel. There's so much good information on the topics we're looking into. So Brian Forster talks about he had 30 or 40 medical professionals uh, look at these elongated skulls, and they really just didn't have any context for how to how to think of these things because obviously they're not coming across them in their in their schooling or in their professions. But I wanted to go through some of the um, physical features and then talk about kind of the geography uh, around the world. Um, So one of the characteristics is up to 50% larger eye sockets. Um, And then another is the sagittal suture missing. So the sagittal suture is... um, the connective tissue between our um, skull plates. And I believe it's the the one that runs front to back in our skull from like the top of our skull backward. And these elongated skulls, one of the features that is completely different genetically and something that you can't account for with the, the cradle headboarding that a lot of people say, and that and they do find elongated skulls that are headboarded. But the, but the natural elongated skulls are completely missing that suture, and they only have uh, like a, like a front-to-back division between the plates. They don't have one running, running front-to-back dividing the left and right. Um, and then the brain cavities are 20%, and I believe up to 40% larger. I, I remember several years ago watching one of, L.A. Marzulli's um, videos, and he had a naturally elongated skull, and they they filled it with rice and compared the volume to a normal human skull. And that was, uh, if I remember right, it was 40% more volume in the brain area. Um, and then there's uh, where the spinal column enters the, the skull, called the foramen magnum. And that is about an inch out of place compared to ours. So ours is like normal human skull. It comes in kind of centered, you know, balanced. Um, But these elongated skulls, obviously, with more mass, more cranial mass, uh, different center of gravity, um, it's about an inch different where the spinal column enters. And then, of course, the DNA uh, results, too. some coming up as unknown, some being from groups that are not like Native American in these areas, <clears throat> um, and so they're they're trying to account for why those would be there. Uh, and and that was Brian Forrester, and um, 
as a research for anyone's listening to this, the uh, blurry creature episode seven, correct? Yep. That was seven. Uh, he, he, so yeah, he is definitely kind of like we were saying, we don't have to reinvent the wheel on a lot of this, go to the source, the ones that do the research. He's an, that's an excellent episode to really dig into that subject. And it, it is interesting. So you're right. The, the headboarding did take place, which a lot of people feel like the cultures were emulating what they saw was actually a real elongated skull and almost idolizing them and wanting to be like them. So they were making their kids heads to be that way, you know, so they were manipulating, but as you stated, the, the ones that were found that was genetically different, you know, it, 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 couldn't be a headboarding situation because of the way it lined up. I forget that part of the, that you mentioned, but um, the spinal column is very, yeah. Yeah. The spinal column. And, um, and there's that hole, uh, there it is, it is curious, uh, to see and, and, and why, why Peru? I don't know, but Peru seems to be that, that area is they found the most. Yeah, the Paracas skulls of Peru, I guess, is the highest concentration in the world. And the second highest concentration, um, I was listening to an episode with uh, Derek Olson. Um, I believe it's episode 132 of Blurry Creatures. The second highest in the world comes from the Black Sea area of Crimea. So it's near the Middle East. So there's there's a strong likelihood of that migration, probably from the Middle East area, and then ending up in Peru and Bolivia. Um, and we'll get into that, some of that geography. But yeah, I mean, you combine all of these physical features, um, the eye sockets, the sagittal suture missing, the greater brain cavity, um, I believe uh, Derek said up to 50% greater um cranial mass um the the roughly an inch different of the forma magnum which is where the spinal column comes in and then there's a few other things that aren't as talked about as much there's um there's some tiny bones towards the back of these elongated skulls and they actually call them inca bones um and our skulls don't have those um there's a lar- uh typically a larger more massive jaw. Um, I think that's about all of the main features. But again, yeah, you're not going to get that from cradle headboarding. You know, these are actually genetic anomalies. And they're finding these, Some sometimes they're finding, you know, over a hundred of these in one uh, burial area. So it's not like you could explain it away and say, oh, well, we have, you know, genetic mutations, diseases, and and weird formations of people. Yeah, that happens. But you don't you don't typically have a concentration of them in one area. And like you said, you don't have you know cultures presumably emulating them by, by trying to trying to uh, mess with their infant's skull to try to try to make them look like some other people group. Um, so I think it'd be a really good follow-up episode for us to kind of um, 
round out this topic um, to go to that uh, Derek Olson episode because there's some things that he mentions about um, about sound and frequencies and maybe their skulls having something to do with um, the sounds that they were able to create. And he mentioned something about that having to do with like as a they thought it a a way to enhance their their rituals or their worship. Um, so there's a lot to do with frequencies and vibrations and sounds that has to do with some of these occultic things and some of these, you know, technology things like, you know, being able to move these, these megaliths, these, you know, hundreds and hundreds of tons, uh, stone. Um, I was just finding this morning about, being able to levitate uh, rocks with frequencies, you know, and there's, m- there's many, many videos on that. So I think that'd be really interesting to talk about. And that would kind of segue into um, uh, Dr. Uh, I'm going to mess up his name. Uh, Imaro, no, Masuro Imoto, I think is his name. Um, his experiments on the power of words. So I think there's some interesting segues into that. Um, and then Brian also mentioned just just how many doors continue to close when he tries to investigate and test DNA. Um, like one of the colleagues that he had, he he said, "Did you get the results? Yep, got the results. Are you gonna publish this? Nope, not gonna publish it." Or he'll he'll have some cooperation with people, and then they get to a certain point and. They they say nope you can't go any further, and that just seems to be a theme of of trying to either cover up because it something they don't agree with they don't want the information out. Um, I think there's also a threat to people's jobs. You know, if you've got a job at a university or a hospital or or a scientific organization, you know, are you really gonna step outside the bounds of the traditional? evolutionary narrative and talk about some of this stuff. And then um, there's a really good quote I found from a YouTube commenter on one of Brian Forrester's videos, and I wanted to read this. So shout out to this uh, retired archaeologist. I forget his YouTube name, Uh, but I I thought he uh, said it really well. He said, as a retired Archaeologists, I can attest that American archaeology is still rooted in 19th century belief systems. They're not theories about the people of North and South America, but they're beliefs akin to religious dogma. Anything that doesn't fit with this belief is treated as heresy. And so it's this kind of that groupthink, you know, or wrongthink that you're not allowed to talk about. You know, and that's obviously pervasive in our... You know, our universities, young people going to get higher education end up coming out thinking all the same about history, about Christianity, about the Bible, about evolution. And you're rarely allowed as a student or a, or a professor in most of these places to go outside of that, um, that normal thinking. So no surprise that that Brian Forster, Ellie Marzulli, and others, you know, find these uh, 
um, roadblocks when they when they try to try to look into these things further. So you know, some people throw out, well, if this was really true, we'd hear about it. It would be major news. Well, there's so many factors, and I you know I want to do a, a podcast on on just that on the factors of how do conspiracies how do how do facts stay hidden and it doesn't have to be some you know some some person pulling all the strings like some puppet master you know like a George Soros with with huge ties of power and money although that does happen a lot of times it's just the low level guy you know working at a in a lab or at a university and he's got a decent paycheck and a family, and he doesn't want to lose that. Very true. Um, yeah, there's a lot of factors in that. Um, tenure, money, livelihood, yeah, who you're, uh, you're supporting, your colleagues, uh, peer pressure, influence and stuff. All those things factor into things. Um, and, then, and then you got, you know, it goes again with money. Um, financing your projects because if you're in archaeology or you know you're you're in doing these testings you know it's a lot of it is tied to universities which are very profitable and um they can choose to use a different uh, lab they can use something else and um if it doesn't fit a certain narrative it it does seem to to happen where they'll 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 change it. Uh, yeah, I think he used that example. He had all the green lights going forward with the DNA testing. And in his opinion, he thought the tester was 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 hoping it was going to be the native uh, culture in that region. But the results weren't what they were expecting. So because they weren't what they were expecting, and they would decided not to publish it. They decided not to continue to further uh, explore those possibilities. And I think there's a lot of benefit to someone like a, a Graham Hancock. And it's interesting that Netflix came behind him with that series because he's been labeled, you can pull him up on Wikipedia and stuff as a pseudoscientist, but he's not, he's not a scientist. He's not a pseudo archaeologist because he's not an archaeologist he's just an investigative reporter that's asking a lot of good questions and done a lot of good research and that's what people are wanting to do i I heard it said by elon musk um in a tweet yesterday he's like uh it was a particular subject and he was happy that the far left and the far life far right or 80% or the, the 20% were mad. He's like, then I'm, 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 if, if I've got 80% of the viewpoints willing to have a dialogue, that's what you want. You don't want the, the far left or the far right to dominate any conversation, whether it's this that we're talking about or politics or whatever. You want to have a platform where you can exchange information and debate ideas and see which ones are accurate and science science claims they got it all figured out um 
but obviously they don't. And if, if it's true science, they should be testing all ways of thinking, even if it, it totally changes their paradigm. Right. That's, that's the least scientific thing is to say that science is settled. And there's a, there's a term that was coined um, some years ago, scientism, where it's, it's a religion. It's a dogma. And, uh, and so, yeah, true discourse of ideas, um, that is not something that, uh, that Satan wants, that the enemy wants, that, um, you know, those, those opposed to biblical truth want, um, that those that have kind of a dog in the fight of evolution or a certain narrative history, they don't want, they don't want that idea, those ideas, uh, discussed you know because truth will stand up to it truth truth will stand up to to scrutiny right and and that and that's what you were trying to do with having this conversation especially if we had any of our friends join on is we are welcoming welcoming the criticism the questions the analysis on these subjects because it it helps us dig into it and um and it's either going to strengthen our position or okay, well maybe point we out need some to think cracks. Something else. Yeah. Yeah. Find the cracks. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and that's why as I put it out to um to more and more people uh to, to hopefully join in on the discussion that, you know, yeah, we welcome those disagreements and those hard questions. Um that's what makes a more rich discussion too. It'd be nice to have uh, a, a Discord or some place where we could um, allow people to chime in and ask questions or state certain opinions, and then we can discuss those. Kind of like you had that co coworker, you know, that gave you a list, and then you started researching it. Yes, he wasn't there to defend or, or rebuttal your answers, but maybe a message board of some type we could use uh, where other people could, uh, could chime in with yeah. the beneficial. I think that's a great idea, especially because a lot of people aren't going to be able to make like a live call like right now, but they'll be able to post these things and then we can address it. I think that's a great forum. There's, um, there's some things that we can do to connect uh, both the podcast platform to listeners for them to be able to, connect with us that way but um also a discord would be would be a good method too so yeah i think we should definitely look into that um so then talking about kind of the relation to nephilim um the, this race of people with these elongated skulls so it seems like that is not exclusive to nephilims per se right that the that that Giants didn't necessarily have these elongated skulls, but perhaps this was a subspecies or a different race in some way, um, probably related to them. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I would venture to guess, because it's kind of like the whole book of Enoch, Genesis 6, the original Nephilim, Those, that would be the pure offspring. And then you had the Rephaim, I believe it's stated. And those are almost like 
you know, or what is stated in, in numbers, these are the descendants of the Anakim or, you know, these, the Nephilim. So you have these generations later. So when we're getting into the time frame that we're talking about in Peru, and we're, we're thinking that the skulls that are found are not headboarded, these are actual genetic mutations, um, or the way the genetics is designed to create the, the body. Um, it seems to me to be um, down the family tree, you know. So it's definitely not a pure source. Um, and I don't think it's, I, I don't know, I don't know that it's, it was a common thing all around the world either. We, we don't know that. Um, I guess the jury's out on that one. Right, right. I'd like to, I'd like to find some more resources on that and how they relate, uh, to to nephilim giants and and that sort of thing, because I think that's a kind of our assumption that they they fall into that. But obviously, um, I don't think it's across the board. Uh, that these characteristics were were shared. Um, the red hair seems to be one thing that is is shared. Um, that seems to be a, a commonly reported thing with giants and elongated skulls. And again, that would be something not native to like some of these South American areas that the, to to have those characteristics. So switching kind of into the megaliths, some of the structures found around the world that show technology and expertise that we can't duplicate, we can't explain. So some of the areas, uh, we've got Cusco, the capital of the Incas, um, in Peru, Bolivia, Middle East, uh, there's Petra in Jordan, um, Egypt, Greece, Easter Islands, Sardinia. So there's all sorts of places that these megaliths are found. And then right in the um, in the U.S., you've got you know these these mounds. Some of these things are they're two stories or larger. And Native Americans have said that they did not build them, so we call them uh, you know Indian burial mounds or, or Native American burial mounds. And they're saying nope, we didn't build these things. Um, and you have to you have to imagine too just the the practicality of like, you know, you're kind of a, I guess, hunter gatherer type of society, right? Are you really going to spend that amount of effort to move that amount of dirt? Like it's, it, it doesn't seem very practical just in that sense. Um, and then what we find with a lot of these megaliths is the building techniques are more advanced but they are older than the less advanced structures. So you'll see those smaller stones on top of giant stones. So you see that in Peru. You see that in um, uh, Lebanon with, uh, what is it, like a 1,200-ton 12, stone. And then there's some of these other structures where the stones are maybe like 100 tons each. And then you've got tiny little stones with mortar, you know, built on top of it. Whereas these giant stones have no mortar. They fit together absolutely perfectly. You can't get a human hair between them. Um, 
and and some of these things like in Lebanon um I think it's the Stone of the Pregnant Woman but it's a mistranslation um Brian Forster says I forget what the exact translation is supposed to be um but that one is like 1200 tons so we're talking a couple million pounds and and these are like of uh granite type stone so some of the suggestions that skeptics have had i forget the term now I, i meant to look it up but there's a technique with limestone where you can basically create like a concrete paste out of it and then you can form it so some of the skeptics are saying oh some of these limestone structures they could have uh done this to it in order to make make these things they didn't necessarily have to cut a whole stone and move it Um, but that doesn't work for the granite and the quartz where the bronze age tools that they had uh you know it'd be it'd be like trying to chop down a tree with a plastic knife you know i mean you you'd have a real hard time um and then yeah so the harder the harder stones they wouldn't have been able to to deal with and then some of the shapes i mean you and i have looked at pictures of uh in peru i think is is in particular where you have these this is not uniform construction i mean the most efficient way to to build stone or brick is to make them all the same size so they fit together right you could make those you could crank them out like an assembly line the same the same size we have these megaliths where they're fitting together like almost like a jigsaw puzzle and they they appear like they were even morphed like a marshmallow as they kind of sit together um, that's not an efficient way to to build construction, especially when you're talking about hundreds of tons some of these stones weigh. Yeah, it's definitely not efficient, but if you have the technology, it, it definitely is uh, unique. It's, it, it looks pleasant to the eye, you know, Right. you've got all these different different angles and curves and stuff, you know, so it's, it's almost the, a style of it in and of itself, and it's purposeful. You know, no. The reason I brought up the efficiency is is more to say, look, if this is this is not how we would do construction, you know, especially with something so heavy, and to have it fit so well. So I think it just shows another level of their expertise that they were willing to take it up to an artistic level, like you said. Absolutely, and it's and it's it's shouting to the world throughout this centuries we have a technology to do this and we're showing it off and nobody since has a technology that can duplicate it i did look up um what a modern crane can lift because i i remember either hearing or maybe it was my own opinion that you know we can't lift some of these things Uh, that's not entirely true i did find the the world's strongest crane can lift Oh gosh, I forget the number. It was many thousands of tons. So we do have the technology now, but just think of how much advancement in terms of uh, mechanics and engineering and hydraulics had to come to the point in 2022 where we could 
even potentially lift one of these stones. So that's, yeah, night and day compared to what technology should have been in the in the accepted narrative of history, that we are more advanced now. People were less advanced then, um, but they were able to do it. And so it kind of, and, and one of the questions uh, uh, Nate had for Brian was, was asking, do you think it was, you know, 20, 30 foot tall giants that may have moved these things? And that's entirely possible. But Brian's answer was, well, it's not just a matter of them being able to move these. It's the technology in how these things were cut. Uh, so that's the next thing I was going to bring up is um, some of these things have like laser precise cuts, perfectly level. Um, we talked about the stones appearing to have almost been melted into place the way they sit together, no mortar between them. And then this is one of the most fascinating, I think, is the efficiency of cutting. So Brian says that that based on um, what they see, the evidence of what they see and, and how these stones were cut, that it appears to be 300 times more efficient than our diamond cutting tools of today. And some of the cuts, he said, you can, uh, apparently, you know, you can, you can pick this up as a, uh, a trained eye. You can discern that the cuts are searing through these hard stones like granite and quartz at two to three millimeters per revolution. Just try to try to put that in perspective. If uh, it, if you had a chainsaw going through a tree, yeah, you're probably moving it. Well, I don't I don't know. I mean, how many revolutions does a chain go around a chainsaw? That'd be, that'd be something to look up. But just imagine just one time around, one time around of a chain, and you've removed two to three millimeters of wood. I think that'd be pretty efficient. So we're talking about cutting these hard stones and every time around whatever blade or 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 source they're using is removing that much stone yeah it's very very interesting and it adds uh adds to the mystery of of uh, the lost technology and it and it you know is an affront to the the narrative that we evolved from these hunter-gatherer type people and we're at the pinnacle today. We're not. There was a, some ancient technology that was far, far advanced than what we have right now. What happened? Where'd the where'd technology they go? go? Yeah, where'd the technology go? Who are these people mm-hmm. that did it? Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a fascinating time to be alive now to be able to have, you know, access to um, information and researchers and people who are asking good questions like Graham Hancock modern day um indiana jones types like uh, uh tim alberino and la marzulli going out and and testing these things and looking at these things and asking good questions um yeah we can't stick our head in the sand and it all it all ties back i mean i think as we're talking about a lot of these related topics it all ties back to a source of technology and knowledge and understanding that the narrative of 
Genesis 6 is these watchers, these angelic beings brought into the world. And as I'm going through um, Annette Yoshiko Reed's book on how the Book of Enoch was treated in antiquity uh, by early Jews and Christians, just understanding that that is a an often uh, forgotten uh, source of the proliferation of evil and corruption that took place where the flood was necessary. It was a lot of these the technologies that were taught. When the angels took wives for themselves, they taught their wives these, these different crafts. And so you had an explosion of that uh, corruption. So, so just kind of to uh, to wrap that up, as you know, these megaliths and these strange skulls and things that we can't duplicate today, um, they all have that common connection into that. Um, some of the verses that that stuck out to me that kind of um, put a framework for what we are trying to discuss, as I was sharing it with some. Um, people from church and so on. Um, you know, I thought of um, test all things, hold fast to what is good. Um, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, the glory of kings to to search it out. Um, of course, Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, so it shall be when I come again. You know, these type of verses that just give us that framework of what we're trying to do. Oh, and the fourth one, um, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. So those are kind of the verses that come to me as we're trying to uh, make sense of these things and then also trying to um, show why it's important. You know, it's about understanding, it's about discernment, it's about exposing darkness and understanding the times we're in and what's to come. So, and and it's and it's just fascinating too, just the history of these things that, you know, we're not. I mean, who's taught about megalithic structures, um, ancient technology, elongated skulls? You know, this is not something you normally come across in school or in church. Thanks for listening to the Days of Noah. Join us next week as we continue our discussion on ancient technology, fallen angels, giants, the strange, the biblical, the supernatural, as we try to uncover the past, connect it to the present, and discern the future.